Section One of Three Soldiers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M.B. Three Soldiers by John Dos Passos. Section One. Les contemporains qui souffrent de certaines choses ne peuvent s'en souvenir qu'avec une horreur qui paralyse tout autre plaisir, même celui de lire un conte. Stendhal Part One, Making the Mold One. The company stood at attention, each man looking straight before him at the empty parade-ground where the cinder-piles showed purple with evening. On the wind that smelt of barracks and disinfected, there was a faint greasiness of food cooking. At the other side of the wide field long lines of men shuffled slowly into the narrow wooden shanty that was the mess-hall. Chins down, chests out, legs twitching and tired from the afternoon's drilling, the company stood at attention. Each man stared straight in front of him, some vacantly with resignation, some trying to amuse themselves by noting minutely every object in their field of vision, the cinder-piles, the long shadows of the barracks and mess-halls where they could see men standing about, spitting, smoking, leaning against clapboard walls. Some of the men in line could hear their watches ticking in their pockets. Someone moved, his feet making a crunching noise in the cinders. The sergeant's voice snarled out, "'You men are at attention! Quit your wriggling there, you!' The men nearest the offender looked at him out of the corners of their eyes. Two officers, far out on the parade-ground, were coming towards them. By their gestures and the way they walked, the men at attention could see that they were chatting about something that amused them. One of the officers laughed boyishly, turned away, and walked slowly back across the parade-ground. The other, who was the lieutenant, came towards them smiling. As he approached his company, the smile left his lips, and he advanced his chin, walking with heavy, precise steps. "'Sergeant, you may dismiss the company.' The lieutenant's voice was pitched in a hard staccato. The sergeant's hand snapped up to salute like a block signal. "'Company dismissed!' he rang out. A row of men in khaki became a crowd of various individuals with dusty boots and dusty faces. Ten minutes later they lined up and marched in a column of fours to mess. A few red filaments of electric lights gave a dusty glow to the brownish obscurity where the long tables and benches and the board floors had a faint smell of garbage, mingled with the smell of the disinfectant the tables had been washed off with after the last meal. The men, holding their oval mess kits in front of them, filed by the great tin buckets at the door out of which meat and potatoes were splashed into each plate by a sweating K.P. in blue denims. "'Don't look so bad tonight,' said Fuselli to the man opposite him as he hitched his sleeves up at the wrists and leaned over his steaming food. He was sturdy, with curly hair and full vigorous lips that he smacked hungrily as he ate. "'It ain't,' said the pink flaxen-haired youth opposite him, who wore his broad-brimmed hat on the side of his head with a certain jauntiness. I got a pass tonight, said Fuselli, tilting his head vainly. 
Going to tear things up? Man, I got a girl at home back in Frisco. She's a good kid. You're right not to go with any of the girls in this goddamn town. They ain't clean, none of them. That is, if you want to go overseas. The flaxen-haired youth leaned across the table earnestly. I'm going to get some more chow. Wait for me, will you? said Fuselli. What you gonna do downtown? asked the flaxen-haired youth when Fuselli came back. Dunno. Run around a bit and go to the movies, he answered, filling his mouth with potato. God, it's time for retreat, they overheard a voice behind them. Fuselli stuffed his mouth as full as he could and emptied the rest of his meal reluctantly into the garbage pail. A few moments later he stood stiffly at attention in a khaki row that was one of hundreds of other khaki rows identical that filled all sides of the parade ground, while the bugle blew somewhere at the other end where the flagpole was. Somehow it made him think of the man behind the desk in the office of the draft board who had said, handing him the papers sending him to camp, I wish I was going with you and had held out a white bony hand that Fuselli, after a moment's hesitation, had taken in his own stubby brown hand. The man had added fervently, It must be grand, just grand to feel the danger, the chance of being potted any minute. Good luck, young feller. Good luck. Fuselli remembered unpleasantly his paper-white face and the greenish look of his bald head. But the words had made him stride out of the office, sticking out his chest, brushing truculently past a group of young men in the door. Even now the memory of it, mixing with the strains of the national anthem, made him feel important, truculent. "'Squads right!' came an order. Crunch, crunch, crunch in the gravel. The companies were going back to their barracks. He wanted to smile, but he didn't dare. He wanted to smile because he had a pass till midnight, because in ten minutes he'd be outside the gates, outside the green fence and the sentries and the strands of barbed wire. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Oh, they were so slow in getting back to the barracks, and he was losing time, precious free minutes. Hep, 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 cried the sergeant, glaring down the ranks, with his aggressive bulldog expression to where someone had fallen out of step. The company stood at attention in the dusk. Fuselli was biting the inside of his lips with impatience. Minutes at last, as if reluctantly, the sergeant sang out, Dismissed! Fuselli hurried towards the gate, brandishing his pass with an important swagger. Once out on the asphalt of the street, he looked down the long row of lawns and porches where violet arc lamps already contested the faint afterglow drooping from their iron stalks far above the recently planted saplings of the avenue. He stood at the corner slouched against a telegraph pole, with the camp fence surmounted by three strands of barbed wire behind him, wondering which way he would go. This was a hell of a town, anyway. And he used to think he wanted to travel round and see places. Home will be good enough for me after this, he muttered. Walking down the long street towards the center of town, where was the moving picture show, he thought of his home, of the dark apartment on the ground floor of a seven-story house where his aunt lived. Gee, she used to cook swell, he murmured regretfully. On a warm evening like this, he would have stood round at the corner where the drugstore was, talking to fellows he knew, giggling when the girls who lived in the street, walking arm in arm, twinned in couples or trios, passed by affecting ignorance of the glances that followed them, 
or perhaps he would have gone walking with al who worked in the same optical goods store down through the glaring streets of the theatre and restaurant quarter or along the wharves and ferry slips where they would have sat smoking and looking out over the dark purple harbour with its winking lights and its moving ferries spilling swaying reflections in the water out of their square reddish glowing windows if they had been lucky they would have seen a liner come in through the golden gate growing from a blur of light to a huge moving brilliance like the front of a high-class theatre that towered above the ferry-boats you could often hear the thump of the screw and the swish of the bow cutting the calm bay-water and the sounds of a band playing that came alternately faint and loud when i get rich fuselli had liked to say to al i'm going to take a trip on one of them liners your dad come over from the old country in one didn't he al would ask oh he came steerage i'd stay at home if i had to do that man first class for me a cabin deluxe when i get rich but here he was in this town in the east where he didn't know anybody and where there was no place to go but the movies hello buddy came a voice beside him the tall youth who had sat opposite at mess was just catching up to him go to the movies yeah and nothing else to do here's a rookie just got to camp this morning said the tall youth jerking his head in the direction of the man beside him you'll like it ain't so bad as it seems at first said fuselli encouragingly i was just telling him said the other to be careful as hell not to get in wrong if you once get in wrong in this damn army it's hell you bet your life so they sent you over to our company did they rookie ain't so bad the sergeant's sort of decent if you're in right with him but the lieutenant's a stinker where you from new york said the rookie a little man of thirty with ash-coloured face and a shiny jewish nose i mean the clothing business there i oughtn't to be drafted at all it's an outrage i'm consumptive he spluttered in a feeble squeaky voice they'll fix you up don't you fear said the tall youth they'll make you so goddamn well you won't know yourself your mother won't know you when you get home rookie but you're in luck why been from new york the corporal tim Sidis is from new york and all the new york fellows in the company got a graft with him what kind of cigarettes do you smoke asked the tall youth i don't smoke you'd better learn the corporal likes fancy ciggies and so does the sergeant you just slip him a butt now and then may help you to get in right with him don't do no good said fuselli it's just luck but keep neat like and smiling and you'll get on all right if they start to ride you show fight you've got to be hard-boiled to get on in this army you're goddamn right said the tall youth don't let him ride your what's your name rookie eisenstein this feller's name's powers bill powers mine's fuselli going to the movies mr eisenstein no i'm trying to find a skirt the little man leered wanly glad to have got acquainted goddamn kike said powers as eisenstein walked off up a side street planted like the avenue with saplings on which the sickly leaves rustled in the faint breeze that smelt of factories and coal dust kikes ain't so bad said fuselli i got a good friend who's a kike they were coming out of the movies in a stream of people in which the blackish clothes of factory hands predominated i came near bawling at the picture of the fellow leaving his girl to go off to the war said fuselli did yer it's just like it was with me ever been in frisco powers the tall youth shook his head then he took off his broad-brimmed hat and ran his fingers over his stubby tow-head 
Gee, it was some hot in there, he muttered. Well, it's like this, said Fuselli. You have to cross the ferry to Oakland. My aunt, you know I ain't got my mother, so I always live at my aunt's. My aunt and her sister-in-law and Mabe, Mabe's my girl, they all came over on the ferry boat, spite of my telling them I didn't want them. And Mabe said she was mad at me, because she'd seen the letter I wrote Georgine Slater. She's a toughie, lived in our street, I used to write mash notes to her. And I keep telling Mabe I'd done it just for the hell of it, and that I didn't mean nothing by it. And Mabe said she wouldn't never forgive me, and then I said maybe I'd be killed and she'd never see me again. And then we all began to bawl. God, it was a mess. It's hell saying goodbye to girls, said Powers understandingly. Cuts a feller all up. I guess it's better to go with koozies. You don't have to say goodbye to them. Ever gone with a koozie? Not exactly, admitted the tall youth, blushing all over his pink face, so that it was noticeable even under the ashen glare of the arc lights on the avenue that led towards camp. I have, said Fuselli with a certain pride. I used to go with a Portuguese girl. My, but she was a toughie. I've given all that up now I'm engaged, though. But I was telling you, well, we finally made up, and I kissed her, and Mabe said she'd never marry anyone but me. So when we was walking up the street, I spied a silk service flag in a window that was all fancy with a star all trimmed up to beat the band, and I said to myself, I'm going to give that to Mabe, and I ran and bought it. I didn't give a hoot in hell what it cost. So when we was all kissing and bawling when I was going to leave them to report to the overseas detachment, I shoved it into her hand and said, Keep that girl and don't you forget me. And what did she do but pull out a five-pound box of candy from behind her back and say, Don't make yourself sick, Dan. And she'd had it all the time without my knowing it. Ain't girls clever? Yeah, said the tall youth vaguely. Along the rows of cots, when Fuselli got back to the barracks, men were talking excitedly. There's hell to pay. Somebody's broke out of the jug. How? Damned if I know. Sergeant Timmons said he could make a rope of his blankets. No, the feller on guard helped him to get away. Like hell he did. It was like this. I was walking by the guardhouse when they found out about it. What company did he belong to? Don't know. What's his name? Some guy on trial for insubordination. Punched an officer in the jaw. I'd have liked to have seen that. Anyhow, he's fixed himself this time. You're goddamn right. Will you fellers quit talking? It's after taps, thundered the sergeant who sat reading the paper at a little board desk at the door of the barracks under the feeble light of one small bulb carefully screened. You'll have the O.D. down on us. Fuselli wrapped the blanket round his head and prepared to sleep. Snuggled down into the blankets on the narrow cot, he felt sheltered from the sergeant's thundering voice and from the cold glare of officers' eyes. He felt cozy and happy like he had felt in bed at home when he had been a little kid. For a moment he pictured to himself the other man, the man who had punched an officer's jaw, dressed like he was, maybe only nineteen, the same age like he was, with a girl like Mabe waiting for him somewhere. How cold and frightful it must feel to be out of the camp with a guard looking for you. He pictured himself running breathless down a long street pursued by a company with guns, by officers whose eyes glinted cruelly like the pointed tips of bullets. He pulled the blanket closer round his head, enjoying the warmth and softness of the wool against his neck. He must remember to smile at the sergeant when he passed him off duty. 
Somebody had said there'd be promotions soon. Oh, he wanted so hard to be promoted. It'd be so swell if he could write back to Mabe and tell her to address her letters to Corporal Dan Fuselli. He must be more careful not to do anything that would get him in wrong with anybody. He must never miss an opportunity to show them what a clever kid he was. Oh, when we're ordered overseas, I'll show them, he thought ardently, and picturing to himself long movie reels of heroism, he went off to sleep. Get up, you! The white beam of a pocket searchlight was glaring in the face of the man next to him. The O.D., said Fuselli to himself. Get up, you! came the sharp voice again. The man in the next cot stirred and opened his eyes. Get up! Here, sir, muttered the man in the next cot, his eyes blinking sleepily in the glare of the flashlight. He got out of bed and stood unsteadily at attention. Don't you know better than to sleep in your O.D. shirt? Take it off! Yes, sir. What's your name? The man looked up, blinking, too dazed to speak. Don't know your own name, eh? said the officer, glaring at the man savagely, using his curt voice like a whip. Quick, take off your shirt and pants and get back to bed. The officer of the day moved on, flashing his light to one side and the other in his midnight inspection of the barracks. Intense blackness again, and the sound of men breathing deeply in sleep, of men snoring. As he went to sleep, Fuseli could hear the man beside him swearing, monotonously, in an even whisper, pausing now and then to think of new filth, of new combinations of words, swearing away his helpless anger, soothing himself to sleep by the monotonous reiteration of his swearing. A little later Fuseli woke with a choked nightmare cry. He had dreamed that he had smashed the O.D. in the jaw and had broken out of the jug and was running, breathless, stumbling, falling, while the company on guard chased him down an avenue lined with little dried-up saplings, gaining on him, while with voices metallic as the clicking of rifle triggers, officers shouted orders, so that he was certain to be caught, certain to be shot. He shook himself all over, shaking off the nightmare as a dog shakes off water, and went back to sleep again, snuggling into his blankets. 2. John Andrews stood naked in the center of a large bare room, of which the walls and ceiling and floor were made of raw pine boards. The air was heavy from the steam heat. At a desk in one corner a typewriter clicked spasmodically. "'Say, young fellow, do you know how to spell imbecility?' John Andrews walked over to the desk, told him, and added, "'Are you going to examine me?' The man went on typing without answering. John Andrews stood in the center of the floor with his arms folded, half amused, half angry, shifting his weight from one foot to the other, listening to the sound of the typewriter and of the man's voice as he read out each word of the report he was copying. Recommendation for discharge. Click, click. Damn this typewriter. Private Co. Albert. Click, click. Damn these rotten army typewriters. Reason. Mental deficiency. History of case. At that moment, the recruiting sergeant came back. Look here, if you don't have that recommendation ready in ten minutes, Captain Arthurs will be mad as hell about it, Hill. For God's sake, get it done. He said already that if you couldn't do the work to get somebody who could, you don't want to lose your job, do you? Hello. 
The sergeant's eyes lit on John Andrews. I'd forgotten you. Run around the room a little. No, not that way. Just a little so I can test your heart. God, these rookies are thick. While he stood tamely being prodded and measured, feeling like a prize horse at a fair, John Andrews listened to the man at the typewriter, whose voice went on monotonously. No, record of sexual depth. Oh, hell, this eraser's no good. Pravity or alcoholism. Spent normal youth on farm. Uh, normal, though, um, say, how many M's in immature? All right, put your clothes on, said the recruiting sergeant. Quick, I can't spend all day. Why the hell did they send you down here alone? The papers were balled up, said Andrews. Scores ten years in test B, went on the voice of the man at the typewriter. Sen excellent M E N T A L I T Y that of child of eight seems unable to either God damn this man's writing how can I copy it when he don't write out his words? All right, I guess you'll do. Now there are some forms to fill out. Come over here. Andrews followed the recruiting sergeant to a desk in the far corner of the room from which you could hear more faintly the click, click of the typewriter and the man's voice mumbling angrily. Forgets to obey orders. Responds to no form of persuasion. M-E-M-O-R-Y nil. All right, take this to barracks B, fourth building to the right. Shake a leg, said the recruiting sergeant. Andrews drew a deep breath of the sparkling air outside. He stood irresolutely a moment on the wooden steps of the building, looking down the row of hastily constructed barracks. Some were painted green, some were of plain boards, and some were still mere skeletons. Above his head, great piled rose-tinted clouds were moving slowly along the immeasurable free sky. His glance slid down the sky to some tall trees that flamed bright yellow with autumn outside the camp limits, and then to the end of the long street of barracks where there was a picket fence and a sentry walking to and fro, to and fro. His brows contracted for a moment, then he walked with a sort of swagger towards the fourth building to the right. John Andrews was washing windows. He stood in dirty blue denims at the top of a ladder, smearing with a soapy cloth the small panes of the barrack windows. His nostrils were full of a smell of dust and of the sandy quality of the soap. A little man with one lined grayish-red cheek puffed out by tobacco followed him up also on a ladder, polishing the panes with a dry cloth till they shone and reflected the mottled cloudy sky. Andrew's legs were tired from climbing up and down the ladder, his hands were sore from the grittiness of the soap. As he worked he looked down, without thinking, on rows of cots where the blankets were all folded the same way, on some of which men were sprawled in attitudes of utter relaxation. He kept remarking to himself how strange it was that he was not thinking of anything. In the last few days his mind seemed to have become a hard, meaningless core. "'How long do we have to do this?' he asked the man who was working with him. The man went on chewing, so that Andrews thought he was not going to answer at all. 
He was just beginning to speak again when the man, balancing thoughtfully on top of his ladder, drawled out, Four o'clock. We won't finish today, then? The man shook his head and wrinkled his face into a strange spasm as he spat. Been here long? Not so long. How long? Three months. Ain't so long. The man spat again, and climbing down from the ladder waited, leaning against the wall until Andrews should finish soaping his window. I'll go crazy if I stay here three months. I've been here a week, muttered Andrews between his teeth as he climbed down and moved his ladder to the next window. They both climbed their ladders again in silence. How's it you're in casuals? asked Andrews again. Ain't got no lungs. Why don't they discharge you? Reckon they're going to, soon. They worked on in silence for a long time. Andrews stared at the upper right-hand corner and smeared with soap each pane of the window in turn. Then he climbed down, moved his ladder, and started on the next window. At times he would start in the middle of the window for variety. As he worked, a rhythm began pushing its way through the hard core of his mind, leavening it, making it fluid. It expressed the vast, dusty dullness, the men waiting in rows on drill fields standing at attention, the monotony of feet tramping in unison, of the dust rising from the battalions going back and forth over the dusty drill fields. He felt the rhythm filling his whole body, from his sore hands to his legs, tired from marching back and forth, from making themselves the same length as millions of other legs. His mind began, unconsciously, from habit, working on it, orchestrating it. He could imagine a vast orchestra swaying with it. His heart was beating faster. He must make it into music. He must fix it in himself so that he could make it into music and write it down, so that orchestras could play it and make the ears of multitudes feel it, make their flesh tingle with it. He went on working through the endless afternoon, climbing up and down his ladder smearing the barrack windows with a soapy rag. A silly phrase took the place of the welling of music in his mind. Arbeit und Rhythmus. He kept saying it over and over to himself. Arbeit und Rhythmus. He tried to drive the phrase out of his mind, to bury his mind in the music of the rhythm that had come to him, that expressed the dusty boredom, the harsh constriction of warm bodies, full of gestures and attitudes, aspirations into moulds, like the moulds toy soldiers are cast in. The phrase became someone shouting raucously in his ears, Arbeit und Rhythmus, drowning everything else, beating his mind hard again, parching it. But suddenly he laughed aloud. Why, it was in German. He was being got ready to kill men who said that. If anyone said that, he was going to kill him. They were going to kill everybody who spoke that language, he and all the men whose feet he could hear tramping on the drill field, whose legs were all being made the same length on the drill field. 3. It was Saturday morning. Directed by the corporal, a bandy-legged Italian who even on the army diet managed to keep a faint odor of garlic about him, Three soldiers in blue denims were sweeping up the leaves in the street between the rows of barracks. You fellers as slow as molasses. Need special in twenty-five minutes, he kept saying. The soldiers raked on doggedly, paying no attention. 
you don't give a damn if we don't pass inspection i get hell not you please queek here you pick up all these goddamn cigarette butts andrews made a grimace and began collecting the little gray sordid ends of burnt-out cigarettes as he leant over he found himself looking into the dark brown eyes of the soldier who was working beside him the eyes were contracted with anger and there was a flush under the tan of the boyish face i didn't get in this here army to be ordered around by a goddamn wop he muttered doesn't matter much who you're ordered around by you're ordered around just the same said andrews where do you come from buddy oh i come from new york my folks are from virginia said andrews indiana's my state the tornado country get to work here's that bastard wop coming round the building don't pick em up that away sweep em up shouted the corporal andrews and the indiana boy went around with a broom and a shovel collecting chewed out quids of tobacco and cigar butts and strained bits of paper what's your name mine's chris field folks all call me chris mine's andrews john andrews my dad used to have a hired man named andy took sick and died last summer how long do you reckon it'll be before you guys get overseas god i don't know i want to see that country over there you do don't you you bet i do all right what do you fellows stand here for go and dump them garbage cans lively shouted the corporal waddling about importantly on his bandy legs he kept looking down the row of barracks muttering to himself god damn time for inspection now won't never pass this time his face froze suddenly into obsequious immobility. He brought his hand up to the brim of his hat. A group of officers strode past him into the nearest building. John Andrews, coming back from emptying the garbage pails, went in the back door of his barracks. Attention! came the cry from the other end. He made his neck and arms as rigid as possible. Through the silent barracks came the hard clank of the heels of the officers inspecting. A sallow face with hollow eyes and heavy square jaw came close to Andrews's eyes. He stared straight before him, noting the few reddish hairs on the officer's Adam's apple and the new insignia on either side of his collar. "'Sergeant, who is this man?' came a voice from the sallow face. "'Don't know, sir. A new recruit, sir. Corporal Valori, who is this man?' "'The name's Andrews, sergeant,' said the Italian corporal with an obsequious whine in his voice. The officer addressed Andrews directly, speaking fast and loud. "'How long have you been in the army?' "'One week, sir.' "'Don't you know you have to be clean and shaved and ready for inspection every Saturday morning at nine? "'I was cleaning the barracks, sir.' "'To teach you not to answer back when an officer addresses you.' The officer spaced his words carefully, lingering on them. As he spoke, he glanced out of the corner of his eyes at his superior and noticed the major was frowning. His tone changed ever so slightly. "'If this ever occurs again, you may be sure that disciplinary action will be taken. Attention there!' At the other end of the barracks a man had moved. Again, amid absolute silence, could be heard the clanking of the officer's heels as the inspection continued. "'Now, fellows, all together!' cried the Y-man, who stood with his arms stretched wide in front of the movie screen. The piano started jingling, and the room full of crowded soldiers roared out, 
Hail, hail, the gang's all here. We're going to get the Kaiser. We're going to get the Kaiser. We're going to get the Kaiser now. The rafters rang with their deep voices. The Y-man twisted his lean face into a facetious expression. Somebody tried to put one over on the Y-man and sing, Why the hell do we care? But you do care, don't you, buddy? He shouted. There was a little rattle of laughter. Now, once more, said the Y-man again, and lots of gut in the get and lots of kill in the Kaiser. Now all together. The moving pictures had begun. John Andrews looked furtively about him, at the face of the Indiana boy beside him, intent on the screen, at the tanned faces and the close-cropped heads that rose above the mass of khaki-covered bodies about him. Here and there a pair of eyes glinted in the white flickering light from the screen. Waves of laughter or of little exclamations passed over them. They were all so alike, they seemed at moments to be but one organism. This was what he had sought when he had enlisted, he said to himself. It was in this that he would take refuge from the horror of the world that had fallen upon him. He was sick of revolt, of thought, of carrying his individuality like a banner above the turmoil. This was much better, to let everything go, to stamp out his maddening desire for music, to humble himself into the mud of common slavery. He was still tingling with sudden anger from the officer's voice that morning. Sergeant, who is this man? The officer had stared in his face, as a man might stare at a piece of furniture. Ain't this some film? Chrisfield turned to him with a smile that drove his anger away in a pleasant feeling of comradeship. The part that's comin's fine. I seen it before out in Frisco, said the man on the other side of Andrews. Gee, it makes you hate the Huns. The man at the piano jingled elaborately in the intermission between the two parts of the movie. The Indiana boy leaned in front of John Andrews, putting an arm round his shoulders, and talked to the other man. You from Frisco? Yeah. That's goddamn funny. You're from the coast, this fellow's from New York, and I'm from old Indiana, right in the middle. What company are you in? I ain't yet. This fellow and me's in casuals. That's a hell of a place. Say, my name's Fuselli. Mine's Chrisfield. Mine's Andrews. How soon's it take a fellow to get out of this camp? Dunno. Some guys say three weeks and some say six months. Say, maybe you'll get into our company. They transferred a lot of men out the other day, and the corporal says they're going to give us rookies instead. God damn it, though, but I want to get overseas. It's swell over there, said Fuselli. Everything's awful pretty-like. Picturesque, they call it, and the people wears peasant costumes. I had an uncle who used to tell me about it. He came from near Torino. Where's that? I don't know. He's an Italian. Say, how long does it take to get overseas? Oh, a week or so, said Andrews. As long as that? But the movie had begun again unfolding scenes of soldiers in spiked helmets marching into Belgian cities, full of little milk carts drawn by dogs and old women in peasant costume. There were hisses and catcalls when a German flag was seen, and as the troops were pictured advancing, bayoneting the civilians in wide Dutch pants, the old women with starched caps, the soldiers packed into the stuffy YMCA hut shouted oaths at them. 
Andrews felt blind hatred stirring like something that had a life of its own in the young man about him. He was lost in it, carried away in it, as in a stampede of wild cattle. The terror of it was like ferocious hands clutching at his throat. He glanced at the faces around him. They were all intent and flushed, glinting with sweat in the heat of the room. As he was leaving the hut, pressed in a tight stream of soldiers moving towards the door, Andrews heard a man say, I never raped a woman in my life, but by God I'm going to. I'd give a lot to rape some of those goddamned German women. I hate them too, came another voice. Men, women, children, and unborn children. They're either jackasses or full of the lust of power like their rulers are, to let themselves be governed by a bunch of warlords like that. I'd like to capture a German officer and make him shine my boots, and then shoot him dead said Chris to Andrews as they walked down the long road towards their barracks. You would? But I'd a damn sight rather shoot someone else I know, went on Chris intensely. Don't stay far from here, either. And I'll do it, too, if you don't let off picking on me. Who's that? That big squirt Anderson they made a file closer at drill yesterday? He seems to think that just because I'm littler than him he can do anything he likes with me. Andrews turned sharply and looked in his companion's face. Something in the gruffness of the boy's tone startled him. He was not accustomed to this. He had thought of himself as a passionate person, but never in his life had he wanted to kill a man. Do you really want to kill him? Not now, but he gets the hell started in me the way he teases me. I pulled my knife on him yesterday. You wasn't there. Didn't you notice I looked sort of upset at drill? Yes, but how old are you, Chris? I'm twenty. You're older than me, ain't you? I'm twenty-two. They were leaning against the wall of their barracks, looking up at the brilliant starry night. Say, is the stars the same over there, overseas, as they is here? I guess so, said Andrews, laughing, though I've never been to sea. I never had much schooling, went on Chris. I left school when I was twelve, because it weren't much good. And Dad drank, so the folks needed me to work on the farm. What do you grow in your part of the country? Mostly cone, a little weed of tobacco. We raised a lot of stock. But I was just going to tell you, I nearly did kill a guy once. Tell me about it. I was drunk at the time. Us boys around Tallyville was a pretty tough bunch then. And we used to work just long enough to get some money to tear things up with. And then we used to play craps and drink whiskey. This happened just at cone-shucking time. Hell, I don't even know what it was about, but I got to quarreling with a fellow I'd been right smart friends with. Then he laid off and hit me in the jaw. I just don't know what I'd done next, but before I knowed it, I had a hold of a shucking knife and was slashing at him with it. A knife like that's a terrible thing to stab a man with. It took four of them to hold me down and get it away from me. They didn't keep me from giving him a good cut across the chest, though. I was just crazy drunk at the time. And man, if I wasn't a mess to go home with half my clothes pulled off and my shirt torn, I just fell in the ditch and slept there till daylight and got mud all through my hair. I don't scarcely touch a drop now, though. So you're in a hurry to get overseas, Chris, like me, said Andrews after a long pause. I'd push that guy Anderson into the sea if we both go over on the same boat, said Chrisfield, laughing. But he added after a pause. It would have been hell if I'd killed that feller, though. 
Uh, honest, I wouldn't have wanted to do that. That's the job that pays a violinist, said somebody. No, it don't, came a melancholy, drawling voice from a lanky man who sat doubled up with his long face in his hands and his elbows resting on his knees. Just brings a living wage, a living wage. Several men were grouped at the end of the barracks. From them the long row of cots, with here and there a man asleep or a man hastily undressing, stretched, lighted by occasional feeble electric light bulbs, to the sergeant's little table beside the door. You're getting a discharge, aren't you? asked a man with a brogue and the red face of a jovial gorilla that signified the bartender. Yes, Flanagan, I am, said the lanky man dolefully. Ain't he got hard luck? came a voice from the crowd. Yes, I have got hard luck, buddy, said the lanky man, looking at the faces about him out of sunken eyes. I ought to be getting forty dollars a week, and here I am getting seven, and in the army besides. I meant they were getting out of this goddamn army. The army, the army, the democratic army, chanted someone under his breath. But because I want to go overseas and have a look at the Huns said Flanagan, who managed with strange skill to combine a cockney wine with his Irish brogue. Overseas, took up the lanky man, if I could have gone and studied overseas, I'd be making as much as Kubelik. I have the makings of a good player in me. Why didn't you go? said Andrews, who stood on the outskirts with Fuseli and Chris. Look at me. TB, said the lanky man. Well, they can't get me over there soon enough, said Flanagan. Must be funny not being able to understand what folks say. They say we over there when they mean yes, the guy told me. You can make signs to them, can't you? said Flanagan. And they can understand an Irishman anywhere. But you won't have to talk to the Huns. Begory, I'll set up in business when I get there. What do you think of that? Everyone laughed. How'll that do? I'll start an Irish house in Berlin, I will. And there'll be O'Casey and Orion and O'Reilly and O'Flaherty. And be God, the King of England himself will come and set the goddamn Kaiser up to a drink. The Kaiser will be strung up on a telephone pole by that time. You needn't worry, Flanagan. They ought to torture him to death like they do niggers when they lynch him down south. A bugle sounded far away on the parade ground. Everyone slunk away silently to his cot. John Andrews arranged himself carefully in his blankets, promising himself a quiet time of thought before going to sleep. He needed to be awake and think at night this way, so that he might not lose entirely the thread of his own life, of the life he would take up again some day if he lived through it. He brushed away the thought of death. It was uninteresting. He didn't care anyway. But some day he would want to play the piano again, to write music. He must not let himself sink too deeply into the helpless mentality of the soldier. He must keep his willpower. No, but that was not what he had wanted to think about. He was so bored with himself. At any cost he must forget himself. Even since his first year at college he had seemed to have done nothing but think about himself, talk about himself. At least at the bottom, in the utterest degradation of slavery. He could find forgetfulness and start rebuilding the fabric of his life, out of real things this time, out of work and comradeship and scorn. Scorn, that was the quality he needed. It was such a raw, fantastic world he had suddenly fallen into. 
His life before this week seemed a dream read in a novel, a picture he had seen in a shop window. It was so different. Could it have been in the same world at all? He must have died without knowing it and been born again into a new, futile hell. When he had been a child he had lived in a dilapidated mansion that stood among old oaks and chestnuts, beside a road where buggies and ox-carts passed rarely to disturb the sandy ruts that lay in the mottled shade. He had so many dreams. Lying under the crepe-myrtle bush at the end of the overgrown garden he had passed the long Virginia afternoons thinking, while the dry flies whizzed sleepily in the sunlight, of the world he would live in when he grew up. He had planned so many lives for himself. A general, like Caesar, he was to conquer the world and die murdered in a great marble hall. A wandering minstrel, he would go through all countries singing and have intricate, endless adventures. A great musician, he would sit at the piano playing, like Chopin in his engraving, where beautiful women wept and men with long curly hair hid their faces in their hands. It was only slavery that he had not foreseen. His race had dominated for too many centuries for that, and yet the world was made of various slaveries. John Andrews lay on his back on his cot while everyone around him slept and snored in the dark barracks. A certain terror held him. In a week the great structure of his romantic world, so full of many colors and harmonies, that had survived school and college and the buffeting of making a living in New York, had fallen in dust about him. He was utterly in the void. How silly, he thought. This is the world as it has appeared to the majority of men. This is just the lower half of the pyramid. He thought of his friends, of Fuseli and Crisfield and that funny little man Eisenstein. They seemed at home in this army life. They did not seem appalled by the loss of their liberty. But they had never lived in the glittering other world. Yet he could not feel the scorn of them he wanted to feel. He thought of them singing under the direction of the Y-man. Hail, hail, the gang's all here, we're going to get the Kaiser, we're going to get the Kaiser, we're going to get the Kaiser now. He thought of himself and Crisfield picking up cigarette butts, and the tramp, tramp, tramp of feet on the drill field. Where was the connection? Was this all futile madness? They'd come from such various worlds, all these men sleeping about him, to be united in this. And what did they think of it all, all these sleepers? Had they too not had dreams when they were boys? Or had the generations prepared them only for this? He thought of himself lying under the crepe myrtle bush through the hot, droning afternoon, watching the pale magenta flowers flutter down into the dry grass, and felt again, wrapped in his blankets among all these sleepers, the straining of limbs burning with desire to rush untrammeled through some new, keen air. Suddenly, darkness overspread his mind. He woke with a start. The bugle was blowing outside. All right, look lively, the sergeant was shouting. Another day. End of section one.